Good morning. Oh, I am on. Wonderful. Uh, as Glenn already said, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I know lots of people are away and, and on vacation and sick and all those things, so uh, the Lord blessed me with not being sick this morning, so thank you to the rest of you who bore that burden for me, including Duncan. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, this morning we're going to return to the book of Luke, which we've been, uh, Adam has been preaching through for a couple of weeks starting in Christmas. Before we do that, uh, just a few thoughts I'd like to share, things uh, I'd like to say uh, just kind of in general to the church, uh, to echo a lot of things that have already been said over the last couple of weeks. So uh, it's been such a great joy to be a part of this church family for the last few weeks. Um, this church, as Adam commended us last week, is a church. It's a functioning, God-glorifying body of believers. As I spent some time reflecting uh, this week, I thought beyond what a blessing this body and, and family has been to the Gainics in particular over the last few weeks, uh, and I thought a little further, and how reassuring, how comforting, how incredible it is to know that this is the body we are a part of. This is the body that surrounds Grace and I as newlyweds. Um, this is the body that we serve among, that we worship the Lord with, and uh, should tragedy visit, Grace and I would surround us with the same support and love the Gainics have been and will be receiving. I also thought further this week about what a long journey this will be for them. How much support and love and grace will still be needed and I pray will be given by this church. Uh, let us not fail them in that. And in supporting the Gainix, let us not lose sight of others in our body who are also on long journeys. Others who we may have been supporting through marital difficulty, financial struggles, loss of a loved one, who have unsaved family or children, have had difficulty in starting their own family or whatever else. There are many others in our body on long journeys too. And we are called to love them all. Uh, Lord, I pray that we may love our fellow believers in the Spirit, as you call us to, and that we will be strengthened with all power according to the glorious might of the Lord, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father that we may bring him great glory. We pray this morning as we open your word and return to the book of Luke, that we would uh, be true to you and true to your word, and that we would uh, study and explain and understand things in a way that uh, reflect who you are and are glorifying to you in this body. Pray these things uh, in your great name. Amen. So as a part of um, Janet's church email this week, she sent out a, a link to a, a Bible project or Bible something video because it's been such a long time since we've been in Luke, and it was three weeks ago, uh, I sent that link out just so people could recap. So where have we been? What happens in Luke? It's been a long time since we've been there. Uh, it, of course, begins... Well, let's just flip to the beginning of Luke. We'll flip through real quick together. 
Uh, so it's written by Luke, of course. He dedicates it to someone. Uh, it starts with a prophecy given to Zechariah and then one to Mary in parallel. Mary uh, sings a song about it, glorifying the Lord, and then uh, later Zechariah gives a prophecy kind of on the same vein. John the Baptist is born. Jesus is born. Shepherds visit Jesus. And then there's a couple of accounts of Jesus as he grows up. His family takes him to the temple, to the house of his father. They return to Nazareth. Uh, Jesus goes again to the temple as an older boy and, and stays there for a little bit. John the Baptist's ministry happens. Jesus is baptized by John. He's tempted in the desert and he returns to his hometown to minister and is rejected by them when he declares his coming kingdom. In the next couple of chapters, which is what we looked at most recently, uh, explain who Jesus is. Jesus in Nazareth, like we said, was rejected. He declared a kingdom. He said, here's a prophecy from Isaiah that talks about the future glory of Israel. It talks about the redemption of the nation, how amazing it will be, and it's coming through me. I am the one who brings this kingdom to you. The kingdom is declared. The next number of chapters repeatedly ask by different people, who is this Jesus anyway? Who's this guy who declared this kingdom to us? The disciples of John the Baptist ask him in chapter 7 at the table of one of the Pharisees. He's asked again by the disciples after calming the storm. They say, who are you? Herod ponders who he is. And then in chapter 9, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think I am? Climactically in the section in chapter 9, uh, verse 28 of the Transfiguration, we read this. About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. All throughout those chapters, people ask, who is Jesus? At the end of those chapters, God tells us, he's his son. He is the chosen one. We are to listen to him. The man who declares the kingdom, we now know all about. He's God. This is in whom we place our hope. This is in whom our faith is founded. This is in whom we believe. Jesus Christ, God, one with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. In the Trinity, three distinct, three distinct persons, one glorious God. This is through whom we're justified. We're made right with God through Christ. This is whom, through whom we are sanctified, made clean and holy before the Lord. This is, as said by the Father, my Son, my Chosen One, to whom we are to listen. We know who Jesus is, God tells us, at the Transfiguration in the book of Luke. 
Going forward now in Luke's gospel, there's no room for doubt left. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He is the chosen one. Going forward, as we read Luke, we don't question who Jesus is. There's an expectation from the Father that we know and that we listen to what he says. Not to say that there was room to doubt before or or question the sayings of Jesus before that, because we know who Jesus is anyway. Uh, But in Luke's gospel, in his narrative purpose, we've seen how how intentional he's been about placing things so far and how intentional the Spirit was in building his gospel piece by piece. So narratively now, going forward, the identity of Christ is sure. Going forward, Luke has asserted to his readers, Jesus is the Christ. It's not a question anymore. All of his teaching going forward, everything he says, everything he does, we can definitely see through that lens. We know that to be true, and Luke wanted us to know that would be true. As we continue reading further through Luke, which we will do today, uh, we can follow more clues left by the narrator to to separate some sections and, and work with blocks of text that work together to communicate something specific to us. So the next large section that that Luke has for us starts in chapter 9, verse 51. Um, All the questions about who Jesus is has been answered. And chapter 9, 51 starts with, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That journey begins in 9, 51, and his journey to Jerusalem ends in chapter 19, 27, And then verse 28, when he enters Jerusalem as a part of the triumphal entry. So this whole section, these 10 chapters, is Jesus' single journey to Jerusalem recorded by Luke. Other Gospels record various visits, multiple journeys to Jerusalem, uh, but Luke records only one. He records for us a single, ultimate, final journey of Christ to Jerusalem. A journey to the triumphal entry, the Passover with his disciples, Uh, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. Luke does this with a narrative purpose. He he writes always in a really intentional way. Every event recorded is is not only a part of Jesus' life and ministry and what he did, but it works together to communicate something greater, something further to us. Those last couple of chapters up to chapter 9 communicate who is Jesus, and they answer that question for us. As we go forward, different parts of these chapters will seek to communicate something together to us. Recording a single journey to Jerusalem puts the focus of Luke's gospel on Christ and on his purpose. As we read through Luke, collectively, everything points to Jesus and his mission to seek and save the lost. One commentator notes, uh, from the first announcement of his coming to his ascension into heaven, Jesus is at the center of everything in Luke's gospel. The songs in the early chapters are recorded for his praise. The miracles done are by his power. The teaching is from his wisdom. The conflict of, relig- of religious leaders is over his claims. And the cross is that which only he could bear. Luke gives further unity to his narrative by intertwining the stories of Jesus and John, giving them to us in parallel, New Covenant and Old Covenant. By beginning and ending his gospel at the temple, and by presenting the life of Jesus as a journey to Jerusalem and following the progress of the disciples that they learned to count the cost of their discipleship. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, It's broken up in a couple of ways. Again, we're going to follow narrative clues. So uh, if you write in your Bibles, 
this is a good point to get your pencil out because we're going to make some notes. I got a couple in mind. If you don't like writing in your Bible, uh, I think you should. So that's just a general statement. Uh, but really, I think we can make these kind of notes for a couple of reasons. We're going to break up some sections. Uh, we're going we're to put some slashes between some verses and say, okay, this is one chunk, here's another chunk, here's a third chunk, and assess them independently. Uh, some monk a long time ago already did that to your Bible. All those chapter numbers and headings and stuff were written by somebody else. They're not inspired anyway, so we're going to add our own non-inspired division notes. So if they're already there, you might as well add some more. So starting in chapter 9, 51, we said, Our journey to Jerusalem starts. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now two more times in these ten chapters, Luke says that in a different way. Two more times between Luke 9 and the triumphal entry, Luke repeats that Jesus was going to Jerusalem. That's our narrative marker right there. He's going, he's still going, he's still going, he gets there. The chunk's in the middle, we're going to look at. So the second time is in Luke 13, uh, 22. It says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. So our first block of text ends there. Our second block of text starts in 13.22 and goes to 17.11, where it says it again. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. These narrative clues, chapter 9.51, 13.22, and 17.11, give us a framework to study these sections within. Within each of these three chunks of text, Luke focuses on something different in the teaching and ministry of Christ. All of the parables and encounters and teaching and stories within each section cohesively tell us something bigger. So this morning, uh, we're going to go through all three of those. We're going to go through uh, 951 to whatever it is, 1927. Uh, so it'll bring us to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem next Sunday. Uh, the original intention was to do these three sections on a Sunday each. Uh, so two Sundays ago, last Sunday, and then today. Last two Sundays, of course, didn't really turn out the way we thought they were going to, preaching text-wise, so uh, we've adjusted this preaching text this morning accordingly. So, because this is a really big section of Scripture, uh, our time is going to be spent doing some big-picture commentary, a macro view of these chapters to aid you in your further study of these sections of Luke. Our intention is to uh, equip all of us this morning as we read these passages ourselves to identify some of the themes we're going to talk about today uh, with the encounters, parables, and teachings recorded by Luke. So grab the theme from the section that we're going to talk about and read through the section. Say, okay, how does this fit in? Does it? Maybe, it, maybe one of the passages doesn't. Maybe it fits in somewhere else a little better. But read through and see, okay, this, these sections really are communicating some of these things to us all together. We're going to touch on some big themes. There are, of course, others present and other ways to uh, study this particular passage, but this is the clearest one that I came across in my study. If you watch um, the Bible Project video for Luke 10 to the end, however many chapters that is, 10 to 24, uh, they approach this differently. They, they take this section and... and break it up into a discussion about two kinds of feasts. And that's another good way to look at it too. But we're going to look at these three sections based on those narrative notes of Jesus journeying to Jerusalem. Uh, 
Let's pray again before we do that. That seems like a, a great thing to do right now for me. Lord, we thank you so much for this time we have together. I pray that you would uh, bless me now with clarity of thought and clarity of speech and uh, wisdom as, as I deliver uh, what I've studied from your word and what I believe you've blessed me with in my study. And I just pray that uh, we would understand and we would glean things out of the study of your word this morning, although it is a, a large section of scripture that would be helpful to us in our walk and our further study of your word on our own. In your name, amen. All right. The first thing we need to note in our study of this big portion of Luke's gospel, all ten chapters, is that the whole journey to Jerusalem is bound together by an overarching thing, uh, overarching theme. The kingdom is coming. We talked about earlier. We said Jesus declared his kingdom in Nazareth. They rejected him. He said, "I am, I am here, and I am bringing the kingdom with me." The next couple of chapters looked at who was Jesus. Who's this guy declaring the kingdom? Who is bringing this now? These chapters that we're going to look at are going to talk about the other half of that. There's a guy who's bringing a kingdom. We know about the guy. Now we're going to talk about the kingdom. What is this kingdom? What is he bringing? What does it look like? The overarching theme, the kingdom is coming. Different parts of this message, uh, this theme, are expressed to us through his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, We're going to highlight a couple, kind of one in each section. But each of those sort of sub-themes are present through the whole thing. Not as prevalent in other ones. They're definitely highlighted specifically one in each. So our first section goes from 951 to 1321. As a whole, two big things are communicated to us. The first thing is that with the coming kingdom, final judgment is coming. Final judgment is certain, and we must be ready for it. That's the first thing that Jesus communicates to us through all of his teaching in this section. Judgment isn't a new biblical theme, of course. The Old Testament prophets repeatedly warn Israel and the surrounding nations of impending judgment. Some of it was immediate, happened right away in that period of time, was fulfilled. Other judgments were prophesied conditionally, like the judgment delivered to Jonah on the city of Nineveh. When the city repented, that judgment was withheld. There is also a recurring Old Testament prophecy of a coming day of the Lord. Often Old Testament prophets would use that phrase or they would say, on that day the Lord will come or on that day judgment will be delivered. Those two things refer to a complete, final, unalterable judgment of the Lord coming on the earth. In this final judgment, the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will be ultimately preserved. Uh, We can flip to Isaiah for a, a great example of this. Just a few chapters before that prophecy Jesus read declaring his kingdom. Isaiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 3 says this. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read it quickly. 24, uh, 1 through 3. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants, and it shall be as with the people, with the priest, as with the slave, so with their master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor, so everyone. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. Destruction of the disobedient. 
The other half of that, in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, is the promise of redemption of the righteous. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Those two passages uh, reflect very well that day of the Lord, coming judgment prophecy. The people will be judged. Some people will be redeemed. This is the prophetic vein that that Jesus grabs onto. In these uh, chapters, he continually says things that point towards that coming day of the Lord judgment, that final judgment through him. Most clearly, uh, we can read this in Luke chapter 10, verses 8 through 16. Jesus sends out a bunch of his disciples ahead of him to visit surrounding communities and villages to prepare for his coming. And this is what he tells them as they go. Luke chapter 10, verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus is bringing with his kingdom the day of the Lord. It's not a conditional judgment. There's no condition in there that says, oh, if the people repent, it's not going to happen. Not like Nineveh, where the the city turned their lives around and and began to uh, respect and worship the Lord and his law. There's no conditions here. We are judged righteous or unrighteous, dependent on the grace of God given to us. The day of the Lord is coming with Christ. It is certain. Also in this section, Jesus repeatedly calls his followers to be ready for the coming kingdom, for the coming judgment. Most clearly in in chapter 12 of Luke, verses 35 to 40. Uh, most Bibles will, will title the section there, You Must Be Ready. So chapter 12, verse 35. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, 
If the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Knowing that Christ is certainly coming to bring his kingdom, ultimately as believers we must be ready. There's no uncertainty here, there's no conditions. Primarily the thing we need to do or thing we need to know to be ready is to be saved. The only thing that makes us ready for the coming kingdom of Christ, for the coming judgment of the earth, is salvation alone through Christ alone. Jesus says in in Luke 13, verse 3 and verse 5, when speaking with some some people around him, he says, repent or perish. That's what it comes down to. There's a bunch of people who got killed by a tower that fell on them, and he says, those people were no less righteous than you. What makes them different from you? Those people died. That was it. That was the end for them. Repent or perish. Ultimately, that is how we are to be ready. The second thing we can, we can see repeatedly through this first section of, of the journey to Jerusalem is that hypocrisy and legalism are contrary to the gospel of Christ and not a part of the kingdom that he brings. The legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees is a, it's just an incredible example of what it looks like not to be ready. They were so focused on a narrow, stringent, strict, burdensome interpretation of their law that they missed the broad, sweeping, holistic application of it. They were so focused on their narrow understanding, their legalism, they neglected the intent of the law God gave as a guide to justice a guide to the love of God, a key to true knowledge, which is how Jesus describes it in this section. And in here, it's not only the inward type of legalism and and hypocrisy that Jesus condemns, he also condemns outward hypocrisy, such as a believer denying Christ to others. We can follow this theme uh, through the section, starting with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Which is in here somewhere. Ten twenty-five. That's the one I want. Oh yeah. So starting with that parable in ten twenty-five, Jesus demonstrates to a lawyer, a scribe of the law, who knew the law. Uh, he demonstrates to him in this story, this parable, that it's not by some narrow interpretation of the law that we're saved. It's not by saying, love your neighbor is only your neighbor. It's by a broad application of the intent of that law. You are a neighbor to someone when you love them. That's who your neighbor is. Not just the person who lives next to you or who you rub shoulders with. Not by some narrow interpretation of the law are we saved, but by a broad application of its intent an understanding of justice, of mercy, and of the love of God. Legalism doesn't save us. So you can turn with me through the section as as we kind of go. We're just going to hit some of the big points that that further tell us this. In 1127, uh, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the scribes for their failure to understand the law in this way. They miss that the law doesn't save on its own. It's a key to knowledge. 
They miss that outward obedience doesn't save on its own. Outward obedience is just a covering of what is inward. They were hypocrites. What they did outwardly, their outer righteousness, contradicted what they did inwardly. They had no inner righteousness. After this, in chapter 12, Jesus warns his disciples to be wary of the leaven amongst them, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And it's not just hypocrisy and inward action versus outward, but it's legalism versus mercy. It's interpretation of the law versus intent of the law, as he had just condemned them. Following this, he tells them not to be fearful of those who judge only according to the law on earth, but rather be fearful of the one who judges eternally. That's what's important. And in 12.8, as if to prevent his followers from becoming prideful because of the error of the Pharisees, he warns them not to be hypocrites in the opposite manner. There's one kind of hypocrisy that says, I will do this all on the outside, not on the inside. There's another kind that says, I'm a Christian in here, but I'm not telling anybody. If somebody challenged me on my faith, I'm going to deny it. That is hypocrisy as well, and just as easily condemned as that of the hypocrites, or the Pharisees, who were hypocrites as well. Finally, in chapter 13, we see the end of this theme. After, after the religious leaders challenge Christ for healing a woman on the Sabbath, Jesus puts his legalistic adversaries to shame, and he declares through his words and deeds that it is the gospel and grace that triumph over legalism and hypocrisy. The law was meant as a guide to justice, the love of God. It wasn't meant to restrict people from righteousness or restrict people from the knowledge of God, which is how the Pharisees had abused it. So that's our first section. The kingdom is coming, and with it comes judgment. The kingdom is coming, and legalism uh, is not a part of that kingdom. Hypocrisy is not a part of that kingdom. So when you go home, and we're going to do this all three sections, when you're done, if, if you've made notes on what those themes are, go through. Read those three chapters and say, okay, you know, these sections, do they align with that? Am I getting the same thing out of this? With that theme in mind, does this communicate that through these chapters? Second section. Starts in chapter 13, verse 22, and continues through to 17, verse 10. Again, the big theme is that the kingdom is coming. The question that's asked here is, how do we enter it? There's, there's a kingdom, it's coming. There's a judgment coming with it. We can't go in if we're hypocrites. We can't go in if we're uh, legalistic. So how do we get in? Throughout the teaching and parables in this section, Jesus contrasts two sets of people. He contrasts a group of people who expect to be accepted to the kingdom but they're turned away. And he contrasts those people to those who know that they are unworthy of entering. And those are the ones who are let in. This contrast is, is repeatedly emphasized through the teaching on the narrow gate in chapter 13, the parable of the great banquet, the parables of the lost sheep and lost coin and prodigal son in chapter 15, the parables of the dishonest manager, the story of Lazarus and the rich man in 16, and the story of the unworthy servants in 17. All of these things work together to communicate that contrast. Those who expect to be let in will not be. Those who know that they are unworthy are accepted into the kingdom. Most clearly we can see this theme 
by reading the teaching that bookends this section. It does this contrast very well. And the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. So starting with Jesus' teaching on the narrow gate. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you and say, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. People will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. The people who couldn't get in are those who came to the door and said, Lord, open up. We know you. We, we ate with you. We dined with you. You taught in our streets. We should get in. And those are the ones who will not, who expect through what they have done and through their own righteousness that they will enter the kingdom of God. It's not those expect, who expect to get into the kingdom on their own merits who will enter. It's those who are invited in by the mercy and grace of God who will join at his table. The parable of the prodigal son illustrates this context, uh, contrast to us really well. If you go to Luke chapter 15, 11 to 32, we see the same, same contrast. I'm just going to read the whole thing. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and a ring for his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There's much celebration in the father's house for the son who left in sin but returned in repentance. The son who remained obedient to the command of the father missed the grace shown to his disobedient brother. He was so focused on his own obedience that he missed the joy to be found in the return of his lost brother. The prodigal son knew his unworthiness. He knew he was not worthy to be accepted into his father's house, maybe as a servant. The obedient son expected to be worthy. He'd served, he'd obeyed, he'd been around. He expected those things. The obedient son refused to be a part of the feast while the prodigal son was celebrated, even though he knew he was unworthy. Throughout these chapters, feasts have been a symbol of the kingdom. Those who came to the feast are those present in the kingdom. Those not at the feast are not. There's a number of parables about feasting. There's one about a wedding feast, another one just about a feast. Those who come in, those who are admitted, are in the kingdom. Those who do not come in are not. Finally, in Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, highlights the other half uh, of our contrast here from the beginning of the section. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Good servants of the Lord, in the same way the prodigal son knew his unworthiness, obey and fulfill the command of the master, knowing fully that they are not worthy of his grace. This is a key difference between those who enter the kingdom and those who do not. Those who know they are unworthy servants and serve the master in humility, as opposed to those who knock at the master's door and expect to be let in, to dine with him. It is not those who had more important things to do than attend the great banquet. It's those who were poor, sick, destitute, who didn't deserve an invitation at all. That is how we are admitted to the kingdom. Those who know their unworthiness, know they are unworthy to dine with the king. Not those who knock at the door and expect a seat at his table. Our third section starts in chapter 17, verse 11, and runs through to 19, 27. Uh, this section, again, is separated by those narrative clues in 1711 that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Not only that, but the section is bookended by one uh, encounter where Jesus cleanses ten lepers. And at the end of chapter 19, he tells a parable of ten servants with ten minas. 
this book ending of similar, similar encounters, similar stories, or academically termed an inclusio, you can remember that term if you want to, uh, it's a common literary device used throughout the Bible uh, through, by, by biblical authors to identify the beginning and end of a narrative block. Uh, repetition through the Psalms especially does this. You'll read one line in the Psalm and then they'll say a bunch of things and repeat that line. That block communicates something specific to us. Uh, so it communicates the beginning and end of a block and most often indicates there's a common theme or purpose within that section. So again, the, the encounter cleanses ten lepers. Uh, the end parable, there's ten servants, ten minas. Uh, and they, those two sections communicate to us a common theme that's present through the whole section. So we'll see that now as we read those, those two encounters. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19 say this. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. When Jesus says that to people he's healed, most often it's after he's healed them. The leper was already well. He was healed by Christ. The faith of the leper made him well more than bodily. The faith of the leper made him well spiritually as well. At the end of 19 in verse 11, we see uh, this parable, again about the number 10 communicates the same theme to us. We'll read this one together, 1911 to 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they supposed the kingdom of God was coming immediately. They expected Christ to lead an uh, insurrection against the Roman government, to lead a, a physical, geographical kingdom on earth starting in Jerusalem. They thought he was going to start that right there. So he said, therefore, uh, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. The master said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might at least have collected the interest. 
And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You read those two uh, sections, those, that encounter with the lepers and the parable of the minas together, we can recognize the theme of this section is that the coming kingdom of God is for the faithful. The leper who returned was the faithful one. He had faith in Christ. The servant who was blessed in the kingdom was the faithful servant who made money with the, the money the master entrusted to him. And because the kingdom's for the faithful, that usually means that it isn't what we expect. The people we expect to be entering into the kingdom, the way we expect the kingdom to come, is very different from what it will be and who it will be for. The major theme here, which we can fill in a little bit from the passages in between, is that the kingdom is coming not for whom we would expect or in the way that we would expect. So if you've got Luke 17 uh, through 19 open, we're going to go kind of quick through these stories, just a bullet point at a time, so flip through as, as I talk through them. We can follow both of these points through this section, uh, through each encounter and teaching. The kingdom is coming, not for whom we'd expect or in the way we would expect. First, the one we already talked about, the ten lepers. Which of the lepers returned? The Samaritan, the outcast, the unexpected, the one with faith. For whom will justice come in the parable of the persistent widow? Well, justice comes for her, those who have persevering faith. Who is justified in 18 verse 9? The tax collector is justified. He prays to the Lord knowing he is unworthy. He has inward righteousness. The Pharisee who also prays in pride He's not justified. He thinks he's worthy. He has outward righteousness alone. And the next one, the children come to Christ. Well, who belongs, to whom belongs the kingdom? Those who have the faith of children. Who will enter the kingdom? In the next section of the rich young ruler. Those who put the kingdom before earthly wealth and possessions will enter. Who is made well? Who does Jesus heal? He heals the blind beggar. He heals the poor, the sick, the downtrodden, the outcast. And then in 19.1, to whom does salvation come? To Zacchaeus, to a tax collector, to a man who extorted his own people on behalf of an occupying country. Salvation came to him, to a repentant man, to sinners, to outcasts. The kingdom that is coming is a kingdom for the faithful, for the outcast, for the unworthy servant, for the repentant. The latter part of our theme here was that the kingdom is coming not in a way we would expect. Jesus himself says this to us most clearly in chapter 17, verse 20. And we'll read from there. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, 
or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The first thing we can recognize from that section is that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. He brought it with him and is present in his people. We are now a part of the kingdom of God. It's here. It came with him. Colossians 1.13 tells us that we've been transferred into his kingdom. And Hebrews 12.28 tells us that we've received as a gift from the Lord an unshakable kingdom. We are in the kingdom now. It came with Christ. And at the same time, it's still coming. It has yet to be completed and will not be until Christ returns in glory to ultimately bring his kingdom. This is a part of our great hope, that the Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory, judge the living and the dead, and bring the kingdom of God with him for us to be in. It is here with us now. We are a part of it. Christ brought it. But he will ultimately bring it and establish it when he returns. And the end of this passage that we just read gives us some details on that. What do we expect? What do we look for? Challenging part with this section here is there's a a number of interpretations, lots of different ones. Uh, We'll discuss a few that I'm confident conform to the teaching of Scripture, and I believe you can hold to uh, any one of these and and be confident in your understanding of it. First, uh, in 34 and 35... Of chapter 17. We read, uh, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. Uh, The most common interpretation I've come across is that this refers to some sort of, of rapture of believers, that those who have faith in Christ will be suddenly joined with him upon his return. It's one option. Uh, In studying this passage a little further, though, another interpretation can be reached just based on the immediate context of those verses. We read a little earlier that Noah and Lot and the judgment in their day are given as examples, as illustrations, as forewarnings of this coming judgment. In both the cases of Noah and Lot, 
those who were taken from this earth were those who were destroyed. Those who were judged and condemned were those who were taken. Those who were preserved, saved, left as a remnant were Noah and Lot. So it seems more consistent within the passage itself that those who are taken are taken in judgment. Verse 30 says, uh, in reference to the judgment on the people in the day of Noah and Lot, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Uh, The other verse that's a little bit difficult to kind of wrap our head around is is verse 37. It says, they said to him, where, Lord? Where is this coming? When's it going to happen? How are we going to know? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Brilliant. Many people have gone through great lengths trying to figure out some real specific interpretation of this, looking for crowds of birds and stuff. Um, on the more realistic end of things, some people think that Jesus is referring to that day of the Lord he's already talked about. He says, when I come back, there's going to be all kinds of death and destruction, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like the day of Noah when the earth was flooded. And they just, you know, one interpretation is that, yep, literally there's going to be a lot of dead people and a lot of corpses and a lot of vultures. An alternative understanding of this, and, and somewhat more simply, I think, Uh, The people were asking him where this judgment would happen, and in response, he tells them something really obvious they already know, an unmistakable sign they were familiar with. Where there are vultures, there's a corpse. See a bunch of vultures in the air? There's probably a dead body. It's an unmistakable sign. You see that? You know something is happening. Uh, We might say, or at least we do in Newfoundland, I tried this out on a couple of mainlanders, but it didn't go very well. Uh, Where there's smoke, there's fire. Right? You see a sign and you know something's happening. You see smoke, there's a fire. You see vultures, there's a corpse. When Christ returns, the signs will be clear. They will be unmistakable. We will see things that tell us directly, for sure, that Christ is back. Vultures, corpse. Smoke, fire. Something, Christ is back. We'll know it. It'll be unmistakable. We can take great comfort in knowing that when Christ returns, the signs will be clear. And he tells us earlier in this section, don't follow people who say that it's here. If they're telling you that it's over here, don't follow them. They're wrong. If you haven't got it figured out, if the signs aren't clear enough to you that I'm back, I'm not. The signs will be clear. We can take great comfort in knowing we will not miss the return of Christ. So that is a a broad overview, a macro view of Luke 9 to 19. The kingdom is coming. With the coming kingdom, final judgment is coming. And it is certain, and we must be ready for it. Hypocrisy and legalism are not a part of the kingdom. Only faithful servants who know their unworthiness are admitted, not those who expect to be let in. The kingdom is coming not in a way that we expect, and it's not coming for whom we expect. We said in the very beginning, in speaking of the certainty of the coming judgment, that we need to be ready. Let that be our application today. How can we be ready? There's many things we could say from many places in Scripture, and we said already that the first thing we we need to do is be sure of our salvation. But from the teaching of Jesus in this scripture alone, chapter 9 to 19, for believers, we can be ready in all kinds of ways. This is what Jesus tells us here. And you can read through the section and, and pull these out as well. First, 
Let's obey the fundamental teaching of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Understanding that the way that Jesus taught it. Our neighbor is not just people we rub shoulder with. It's the one we love. Let us not neglect justice and the love of God or hinder anyone from seeking the knowledge of God as the Pharisees did. Let us not fear men who judge according to the law more than we fear God who judges eternally. Let us live in genuine faith, not in internal hypocrisy where, um, where we live as a non-believer but or we live as a believer but are a non-believer inside, or external hypocrisy where we do the opposite, where we are a believer but deny it to people. Let's focus on the eternal nature of the kingdom of God. Not getting caught up in anxiety over wealth or education or possessions, but living in contentment and faith that allows for radical generosity. Let us remember that we are unworthy servants of the Lord. Let us know the cost of discipleship and renounce what we have to be disciples of Christ. Let's rejoice at the return of one lost sheep, one lost coin, one prodigal son. Let's not look back in regret as Lot's wife did. Let us serve as servants awaiting the immediate return of our master, being faithful in what the Lord has entrusted to us that he would entrust to us more in his kingdom. Lord, we thank you so much for what you show us in your word about who you are and the kingdom you are bringing and the kingdom that we get to be a part of. Lord, let us remember that we are but unworthy servants, unworthy to serve you at your table, let alone join you in your feast in the kingdom of God. Pray that we would remember our humility as believers and that we would rejoice exceedingly when one lost coin, when one lost sheep are found, when one prodigal son returns, that we would give great glory to you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.